Welcome to Out of Ratio, the podcast where we break free from the constraints of traditional thinking and embrace the extraordinary world of early childhood education. I'm your host, and together, let's embark on a journey that challenges the status quo, pushes boundaries, and nurtures the seeds of innovation. So get ready for captivating interviews, thought-provoking discussions, and inspiring stories that will challenge your perceptions and ignite your passion for early childhood education. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Out of Ratio podcast with Bertelson Education. I'm Justin Bertelson. And I'm Sam. And today we have the incredible opportunity to talk to a very special guest who is a force in the field of occupational therapy. Joining us today is Nancy Marin, the founder of OccuPlay. Nancy, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited you're here. I'm so excited as well. Thank you for having me. Well, I have to say, before we even get started, that it says so much about you and your practice and just who you are that the second my son found out that my meeting, air quotes, <laughs> this afternoon was with you, he put a stop to everything that was happening in our household and said, I have to see Miss Nancy and still asks every time we drive by your office, can I go play with Miss Nancy? It just, I think, says so much about how occupational therapy doesn't have to be a chore for kids, that it really should be something that's fun for them. And here we are, I don't know, four or five years later after you started working with him, that it just had an, a lasting impact. Um, and he loves you so much. And you've gotten me crying before we have even started. Thank you. <laughs> well, we love you, Miss Nancy. Our house always gets excited when uh, when Miss Nancy comes or we get to see you. I have had the distinct privilege of having known you for years now, um, but for everybody else, can you please introduce yourself and share your background as an occupational therapist and the founder of OccuPlay? Absolutely. And again, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Um, so I'm going to just give you a little synopsis of my background. Um, I have been an occupational therapist for 40 years. Hard for me to even comprehend that I've been doing it for that long um, this November. And what an incredible journey it has been. And honestly, I had no clue when I graduated from as I was entering college, what I even wanted to do with my life. I knew what my interests were, but I really had no clue into what direction I wanted to go. Um, and like many others, I had never heard of occupational therapy and my sister being a physical therapy uh, assistant encouraged me to volunteer at the um, hospital where she was working in their OT department as she felt based on my personality and the things that I enjoyed doing that it might be a good fit. And so that's where I actually got my first introduction um, into occupational therapy. And after taking the Myers-Briggs personality test in my first year of college to determine, um, again, what profession would work best for my interests, OT was at the top of the list. So then I began my educational quest into the OT world. Um, going attending Florida International University, where at the time they didn't even have master's or doctoral programs for OT. So it was a bachelor's in occupational therapy, a bachelor's of science in occupational therapy. And so after I graduated from FIU, I um, worked where I had completed my internship in the adult geriatric population. Um, helping individuals who had experienced stroke, traumatic brain injury, orthopedic injuries, hips, fractures, things like that. And um, just as a side note, I even got to meet Muhammad Ali as he came to our brain injury um, unit to uh, see you know, what it was about and to see if that was a good fit for some of his challenges as an individual that had suffered some traumatic brain injuries and concussions over the many years. Um, so that's like my little claim, to, my most famous person that I have met along the way. But as much as I did absolutely love that setting and feel very, and having felt very connected to my uh, clients, after having my first child, who is now a mother of 
now as she is a mother with my two beautiful grandchildren, I knew that um, my journey into the pediatric world was where I wanted to be. And my heart was really there. And so I started working initially in the public school setting um, in Miami, both in direct treatment and in uh, a supervisory position, getting to cover uh, a lot of the schools and meeting teachers along the way, meeting other therapists. So really, you know, being involved in the school system in those early years of my profession after those first two years in the geriatric setting. And then after having my second child, my son, who it doesn't have children yet, hopefully one day very soon, first he has to get married, but he does have a girlfriend. I was fortunate to begin working in a private pediatric clinic that was very well known in our community. And I worked there for 14 years until I relocated to Northeast Florida, where I'm currently living. I would have to say that having the opportunity in that clinic really advanced my skills and shaped me to become the therapist that I am today. I had incredible mentors along the way, um, having advanced training in neurodevelopmental treatment, otherwise um, known in the world, NDT world. That really is um, a principle or theory that looks at the individual as a whole and that we can't separate who we are as human beings from the physical aspects to the motor aspects to the social context that are involved in that person's life. So having that NDT training really encompasses who I am as a therapist today. And so now I'm currently working here in the Northeast Florida area um, at my pediatric clinic, which provides services um, both you know, to our community as well as the preschool that I had the opportunity to meet Sam at. And I also teach for a continuing education company called Child Seminars that is for occupational, physical, and speech therapists. Just being able to stay connected in direct treatment as well as managing the clinic and being in the classrooms, um, going into many preschools along the way, it's just been an incredible journey. <laughs> that is a, a wonderful synopsis, Nancy. Thank you. That was, um, very thorough, and I appreciate that. So for our listeners who may not know, what's the difference between an occupational therapist from like a what about Bob therapist, if anybody's seen that show, you know what I mean? It's like, or a, a typical like counselor that one would see. Right. And that's a really good question. And I'm going to get a little bit more into this as we continue discussion, but an occupational therapist, I'm going to give you a specific definition from AOTA. Uh, it uses everyday life activities and occupations to promote health, well-being, and the ability to participate in the important activities in your life. This includes any meaningful activity that a person wants to accomplish, including taking care of yourself, your family, working, volunteering, going to school, playing, among many others. And to be a little more specific to early childhood education, um, a lot of similarities, but you know, being able to provide services to young children and families in EI and to students, families, and educational staff in that preschool setting to support engagement and participation in daily living activities that are instrumental in everything that they need to be able to do as we kind of talked about, um, the educational aspect, the play aspect, their leisure, their rest and sleep, and that social participation. And for me, um, just my personal explanation um, and the importance for early childhood education is that there's, as we talked about, much evidence to support the need for that early intervention. Um, many skills, whether it be that developmental, physical, social, emotional, um, develop in those early years. And when there's a glitch somewhere in that system or that developmental process, whether it be due to the physical or medical challenges that that child might have, their environmental or genetic predisposition, as we also you know, got to touch on a little bit, um, that then again, those behaviors become a bit more habitual. So 
early intervention for me is key and to be there to support the teachers and the support staff um, and guiding them in using these specific strategies for a better outcome for all of our kids. But what makes us different is that we're looking at those functional tasks that are involved in their everyday life. So, you know, we have physical therapists, we have speech therapists, physical therapists are looking at the gross motor coordination, the skills that are necessary to be able to walk and run and jump and ride bicycles and participate in, you know, those kinds of gross motor tasks. Whereas uh, occupational therapy will then break it down even further into very specific functional and meaningful tasks for that individual. Um, and so there are times where I may get a referral for play therapy and I, and there are wonderful play therapists that look at a little bit more of that behavioral and emotional piece and work with the families in that realm. And so I have to kind of then go back and discuss with the pediatrician, did you mean occupational therapy or play therapy or both? And this just happened this week. So we have a very specific uh, focus on helping that individual gain the skills necessary for everyday tasks or to rehabilitate them if they've had an injury or whatnot. There is so much that falls under occupational therapy. And I really remember when you came and did training the first time that I was at the center, I was amazed. Uh, I had, oh, Beckett was probably one, maybe two. Um, and so I had a child and at the time didn't realize that there were a lot of occupational needs, occupational therapy needs that he had. And so it was really eye-opening for me to see how occupational therapy can be used in all these different ways, but then also how you're able to evaluate a child from so many different points of view bringing in so many different things that might be happening. And as a teacher, it was wonderful to be able to call you and say, you know, Nancy, <laughs> I have so-and-so that like, I, I know something isn't quite clicking there, but I can't identify what it is. Can you come in and do an evaluation and help us and give us some tools so that we can do just a better job of supporting that child. Can you talk a little bit about some of those things that might be easy to recognize so that parents and educators can kind of see when introducing an evaluation for occupational therapy needs might be beneficial for a child? Sure. I absolutely love the opportunity to go into the preschool settings early on in the school year to educate the staff on some of those developmental and sensory motor behaviors that may or may not be typical behaviors, and also those little subtle soft signs to be aware of. And I think, um, Sam, you're a great example of a teacher who really listened and took what you know we had to, to share and started to really utilize those things within your classroom. And like you said, you know, there's there may be this one little glitch that you know, you're not sure what's happening. And it can be something very simple from a visual deficit, or it could be something related to like noise sensitivity and triggering a behavior. It can be so many different things. Another example that I'd like to share is that if a child doesn't have the core strength in their body to sit upright in the chair, this will then impact their ability to sit and learn, as we know. Um, maybe be able to eat their snacks, be able to open the packages or their lunchbox, um, food falling all over the place, falling off or out of their chair, uh, leaning on the table or their peers. Um, and those all are impacting on those important life skills. We often also see children who lack in general body awareness, where they may sit on another child, especially during circle time. <laughs> they might push too hard without realizing how much force they're using. And again, these are some of those sensory components that we are sensory motor human beings. So we can't separate those components out. 
these then start to impact on their fine motor development, not being able to hold their crayon or utensil, um, impacting the ability to learn how to color, write, the use of scissors, you know, all the things that you need to be able to do in those early childhood um, years and in, in the preschool setting. And sadly, what I think happens so often is that then this looks like a bad behavior or avoidance behavior when it often is something that is completely different, whether it be from a sensory processing standpoint or also from that fine motor, visual motor, or even auditory processing challenge that are impacting then on their ability to be successful in the classroom. Nancy, I just want to hop in real quick and say that my wife and in her family, they have, I don't know if it's a syndrome or it's not really a disease, but they have what's called amblyopia or lazy oh, eyes. Me too. Um, yeah. So um, used to be, and in some places they still patch very often. For our listeners, one eye doesn't work as well as the other one. So it tends to wander if you're getting tired or, or uh, some other, for other reasons. Um, but they used to put an eye patch on the good eye in hopes to turn the bad eye on. But my wife, Jill, is actually legally blind in her bad eye. And so we started to notice that our five-year-old Ross was experiencing, like, he, when he got tired, his eye would kind of wander in. You wouldn't be able to tell unless you were looking for it. But we knew that my wife, Jill, even from when she was a little girl, had this. So we got Ross evaluated, and now he goes to vision therapy, which is a super program. Optometrists and ophthalmologists, it's like very, it's not everywhere yet, but it worked super well for Jill. She tells this wonderful story of how when she was told when she was in high school, that's when she started vision therapy, that she didn't have depth perception. And she and her mom just started laughing. Uh, because Jill played varsity soccer as a freshman. You know, like, how could I not have depth perception? Anyway, she contrasts that for, for when, after she had started doing vision therapy, she was running through in the rain and she was able to see the, like the depth of the rain. Mm. And she just started crying. She had never recognized or was, wasn't able to see these things. Anyway, I say all these things to say that there's a lot of different different therapies that are happening. And in the future, I anticipate there's going to be a lot of different therapies that are going to continue to be developed and refined to say, okay, well, this is really effective. This is not so much or older practices from previous generations that were like, oh, well, this is really great, but it would be really more appropriate if we did this, like the eye patching thing, for example. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I I met another person with amblyopia, like amblyopic. Is that how you identify <laughs> amblyopic? So, um, so that's one thing that we're starting with Ross and we're putting him in like different football, like he's in football and we're working with him to be able to use his eyes to better work his body because he's a little more awkward than other kids. But it's like, if we didn't know that he had vision issues, then we would maybe just think, oh, he's just messing around or, oh, he's just awkward. When, because he's only five, we're able to address it now and then be able to help him potentially, like his life is gonna be on a total different trajectory now that we've done this early intervention. I can so relate to every single thing that you're saying, just for the listeners to also put that into a little bit more uh, from the fine motor perspective and for the teachers or parent that when there are, is issues like that, whether it be amblyopia or strabismus where the two eyes just don't work together or one eye over converges uh, comes in or one eye goes out when they're, you know, playing and how they're playing. And if they go to put as an example, a shape into a shape puzzle or shape sorter and they overshoot or undershoot, that is right there a little subtle soft sign or not so subtle soft sign that, yeah, maybe there is a visual aspect that looks maybe more like a fine motor or a motor coordination issue, but it's actually a depth perception yeah. issue. And then of course, as they get older and they start, or the kids that hate coloring, hate writing, We've had many, Sam and I have had many children over the years that fit 
really into that category. And uh, I think, you know, that's when she said earlier that, you know, there's just something not right. And I'll do a brief visual screening and wow, yeah, their eyes don't move separate from their head. Their whole body has to move to get mm. their eyes in a specific plane. And then it really impacts on, you know, them tripping over obstacles in the classroom, right. falling over their friends, and then the friends get upset and then they hit them and, right. and then the other kid bites them. And, you know, you, you've all been in that preschool setting. Yeah. <laughs> and one thing I would say is something that I've heard perhaps more common than amblyopia and vision issues is hearing issues. Mm-hmm. Let's say a baby has ear infections and Sam, you can relate to this. Um, a kid has ear infections and they have a really hard time hearing. Well, if they don't, if they don't hear well, then they won't be able to read well because they won't be able to hear the sounds. Then they'll be need vision therapy, or excuse me, then they'll need speech therapy and all these other things to to help them. So being able to say, oh, this kid isn't just some dumb kid that can't read because his parents don't care about him. Really, they may not have no idea that mm-hmm. he's had ear infections and that has led to a delay in his ability to hear and then to make out the different sounds i think that's something that i've seen in my family and i've heard very frequently it's like oh well he's behind because he had ear infections or because his eardrum didn't develop as well as somebody else's etc I am a hardcore deal shopper, and one of the reasons I love this time of year is because everything on my wish list ends up on sale. If you have professional development on the wish list for your center, we have some deals that will add some extra holiday magic to your day. Check the show notes or head over to BertelsonEducation.com to see our holiday season specials, including $500 off an annual center membership and discounted add-ons like our parenting courses and automatic reporting. We hope you'll check them out. And whether you believe that Christmas doesn't start until after Thanksgiving or that Christmas season is free reign as soon as it hits November 1st, we wish you a very merry holiday season. That was exactly what happened with Beckett. And actually, while he was working with Nancy, he was working with a speech therapist too. And so I think, you know, there's a big piece of this where the different therapies can go hand in hand. You're talking about occupational therapy and vision therapy or speech therapy and occupational therapy and physical therapy. And I think it's so wonderful to have supports for teachers, but for parents too, when we found that out about Beckett, I had no idea. I just thought he wasn't listening to me because I had never had a baby that had a, sp- a, a hearing problem before. And thank goodness for Kim and Jane who pulled me aside and were like, hey, listen, your child cannot hear us. Um, and, and, you know, and a great ENT team that he had. But for years after that, it wasn't, I mean, the ENTs are still around, but it wasn't them who were coming out to his school to work with him. It was Nancy and her colleagues who came to school once a week to play with him at school and help him get back on track. And I mean, now the child doesn't stop moving and doesn't stop talking and um, has graduated twice over, I feel like, from Nancy and her office, but he loves it. You know, with him, it was a lot of sensory. And as a parent, the tools that we gained from learning with you because really it was him but we were also learning so much while he was seeing you really changed the way that we did things at home for him for the better it cracks me up now he like he loves a weighted blanket so half the things in our home are weighted now um (laughs) but every now and then he'll be like mom can you sit on me like and it because he just he's a kid that needs tons of sensory input and I would have thought that was the weirdest thing I had ever heard in my life until Nancy explained to me why. Exactly. And I just wanted to reiterate also about that whole auditory piece for me as an occupational therapist, we don't really learn so much about that part of the sensory system. And in my years of training or just, you know, um, working And I'm like, there's a missing piece, a missing link. And I started um, researching more about the auditory system and actually did a three-week intensive training in Tomatis, which is 
another type of program um, and then became certified in the listening program to help those with auditory processing challenges. So there are those kids that truly are missing certain frequencies of sound. Um, so, you know, like ear infections are a huge, huge aspect to that. And how long have they been missing those frequencies? And, it, and then it takes that much longer to catch up. Um, but then there's also that pro auditory processing piece. And there's so many different areas within visual processing, auditory processing that we then have to still tease out. Is it auditory memory? Is it auditory closure? Is it um, phonemic, you know, phonemic awareness or segmentation? So there's all these aspects, all these little pieces, you're peeling the onion, peeling the onion to tease out, okay, what is happening to this child? And another strong correlation to that auditory and visual piece is the vestibular system, which is our sense of balance and awareness of where our bodies are in space. And that's another critical area that can really impact on what we see in this in these early years. This is a, a very, very interesting conversation now because I'm, I'm in it. You know, I think this is extremely relevant to me and also to our listeners. One thing I would, I want to ask, how was it set up for you and your team, Nancy, to visit centers? I think if I was a childcare center and I had kids that, if I had any kids, you know, I would want somebody to be coming in and screaming and being able to work with these kids. And what a, a huge benefit is it for parents to have their kids be screened while they're in care? I mean, right. especially during the summer. But anyway, tell me more about that. I think that's a super interesting model. Sure. So um, kind of, again, just to kind of summarize what we do as occupational therapists is we address those areas of fine motor and visual motor and auditory development, their social emotional engagement, and that sensory processing and regulation. Like, you know, can they keep their bodies together for the full day? and then go home and let it all hang out. <laughs> and then the parents like, what's happening at home? They were, and they get great reports at school or vice versa. <clears throat> so I do completely agree that collaboration is key and sharing our knowledge, listening to the teacher and their concerns and how we can best support the needs of the child. So as um, an OT that enters into the classroom, to me, one of the most important aspects is those observation skills. Um, and that can be during um, circle time, table time, transitions, playground play, you know, all the different areas that the child participates within their day, because we may see a variety of different types of behaviors through each aspect of those daily routines. And you'll hear the teacher say, oh, you know, they were really good when they were doing their craft or whatever. Yeah. But as soon as we had a transition to our learning center, or we had a transition and stop what we were doing, you know, that, that task was maybe easy for that child, but now they have to transition to something that's a little bit harder. That's when we might start to see some of the breakdown occur. In terms of, you know, really what we can do based on those behaviors is then we can identify those strategies that may be helpful within each of those areas of need. And whether it be adding as Sam said, you know, adding weight, adding proprioceptive input, which is just giving those joint receptors the information that it needs because some kids don't register that correctly. So it's um, input into their bodies, whether it be through marching or gentle hand squeezes during those transitions, using visual aids can be really helpful, um, adding uh, adapting pencil grips with various types of grips, and there's many out there to trial, <laughs> and some work and some don't. So it's really just dependent on what that child needs. And then also other adaptive tools um, that might be needed for scissors or markers or whatnot. And then also helping the staff understand the need for movement. You know, and this can be a very hot topic. I'll just briefly mention it that 
I feel that the educational system in general is putting so much pressure on our little ones that may not be developmentally ready. And then those are the kids that are flagged, but in essence, they may not just be developmentally ready. Um, and so it's really kind of finding that just right balance of, you know, are we seeing these little red flags or soft, soft signs, whether they're motor or neurologically based or behavioral or whatnot, and then how we can best support them in the classroom. Yeah. And Nancy, you, what you said was so interesting that as parents or also as teachers, there's kind of two sides of the spectrum. One, some parents or teachers that are very unfamiliar with developmental delays or what to look for. And then there's some that are hyper proactive. So let me tell you a story. I have the five-year-old Ross, and then I have a three-year-old Tiffany and Tiffany, um, we were really nervous about her not being able to talk. She wasn't talking. And so we took her into an occupational therapist around 14 months. So we were, Ross started talking around, I mean, much earlier than that. So around 14 months, we said, okay, we'll take her in to an occupational therapist. And we got her screened and they said, yeah, she probably just hasn't developed yet. I mean, she's probably not there yet. Within a week, she started just like, jabbering and i don't think she's closed her mouth since we <laughs> exactly um but for me i was like okay it isn't happening right here right now there's a lot of pressure from me and from my expectations put onto tiffany to speak to do those things and it, as she was one so it wasn't like i don't think she was traumatized in any way but i thought as a parent kind of defeated like okay well what do we do to help our little girl at least mm -hmm. say something sometimes kids just develop differently. You know what I mean? Like each kid oh. is different. And it's, that's one thing you have to be aware of and you have to accept as a, somebody who cares for children. My grandson, he didn't walk. He wasn't walking even at 16, 17 months. Oh, wow. And as an occupational therapist, I'm like, oh no. And I mean, I knew that he would get it, but I did see through my observations, some subtle soft signs um, you know, just like the right leg would turn in and he would W sit. So a little bit on the lower tone side, but within mm -hmm. the normal range. And now he does Krav Maga, you know, he's in second <laughs> and, you know, beating kids up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you don't no, have to be I... kidding, Nancy. We all know. Our kids. <laughs> Movement yeah. is one of those things that for me, having been in the classroom, well, let me first say this. Anybody who watches the, the video version of these is going to know that I am the child that cannot stop moving. So uh, this is this is a big deal for me that when I was in the classroom, you know, I think there's all this pressure on, especially during the large group learning time, like they need to sit, they need to listen, they need to be quiet. And I remember telling the teachers at my center, like, no, they don't. <laughs> like there are some kids that will sit for 10 minutes. There are some kids that some four and five-year-olds that will sit for 15 minutes and listen to you talk and read a book. And then there are kids who cannot sit for one minute straight. And some of them listen better when they're doing laps around the classroom or push-ups or um, spinning around in circles. And so the rule in my classroom was always, as long as they're listening, if they need to get up and move, they can get up and move around. And I have to give like major props to Beckett's first grade teacher. I went in for curriculum night and it ended up being me and one other parent, which I loved. That's fantastic. I get to talk to her about all my questions the whole time. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I asked her was, you know, how's he doing with like attention span and, you know, first grade's kind of when it really starts to transition into like, you gotta sit at the desk and do your stuff. And she was like, you know, he does pretty well, but one thing I'm really proud of him for is when he needs to move, he just gets up, quietly goes over to, you're gonna love this. They have a wobble chair, Miss Nancy. Um, <laughs> I know, and he'll get up, he'll go sit in the wobble chair and she's like, and he's fine. He just wobbles back and forth and listens to what we're doing. He doesn't um, disrupt anybody. And she's like, I, I can tell that you guys have given him tools to know what he needs. And I was told her, I'm just so thankful that he's in an environment where he doesn't get scolded for getting up and going to do what his body needs him to do so that his brain can pay attention. I, I think that there's so much to be said for giving kids the opportunity 
to learn in whatever way their body learns best. Yay. That is so fantastic. And I'm so thrilled that he is in a classroom that supports that and recognizes it. Um, and, you know, again, um, Sam in her preschool classroom, I would walk in there and be like, oh my gosh, this is like sensory heaven in here. <laughs> That's because I need sensory heaven. Yeah. <laughs> my home That's is still sensory heaven. <laughs> and I remember early on when I first started at the preschool, um, and during center time, we made those sense, those weighted logs, like for just for the kids that needed that little bit of extra input into the body. Not that we were forcing them to sit, but their bodies just needed that grounding, that proprioceptive input to help them know where their bodies were. Because a lot of times, I mean, kids need to move. Abs there's no doubt about it. And that's one of the biggest struggles is that, you know, in our society, there's so much earlier and earlier that's happening where we have to sit at the table and we have to do this and that, but if they need to stand, let them stand, you know, they're still learning. They're still listening as long as they're not distracting and, and causing, you know, a nuisance. So amen to all the teachers out there that can incorporate, you know, the, those kinds of aspects into their daily routines because it is so important. And just a pet peeve of mine is when I hear, oh, you will not be able to go out to the playground if you don't do A, B, and C. You know, I, I can see the reactions yeah. on your pieces. Like, me nuts. Don't take away their playground time. It's so necessary. When you were teaching and we've taught in the same way for years and years and years, and I'm sure you've seen this, Nancy, and I'm sure you've seen this, Sam, when people teach in the same way for years and years and years, they have kind of a routine and they say, okay, well, do you need to be in your chair? You need like, you're, you're in this box of teaching. And one thing I just want to encourage our listeners is the with the new things that are coming out with occupational therapy and, and the need for movement. I mean, things that are really trendy in early childhood education right now are play-based learning, music and movement learning. I mean, there's a lot of things, but basically we need to help these children and these families understand that moving is okay. I feel like in older generations in the United States, it was like, be seen, but not heard. You know what I mean? I just feel like it was very, very rigid. And if we are in a, a rigid mindset when we're caring for children and supporting families, I think we need to be mindful and try to figure out ways to change and try to figure out, okay, well, this has worked, but what was the goal? Was the goal to really enrich and nurture the children's life or was the goal to get through the lesson? And I would say that the goal should really be to enrich and nurture, not just the children's life, but also the lives of the parents, being able to support them in their, in their parenting journey. And really at Bertelson Education, that's what we care about. It isn't just the children. And you'll know this, Nancy, that occupational therapy doesn't go just to the door of the classroom. It has to go into the door, like the home to be able to really support long-term the development of the children. I feel like we could talk for 10 hours and never run out of things to talk about with you, Nancy. And we might have to. We <laughs> might have to have Nancy back because this is a, yeah. a conversation that I think is really important. We'll get back together with our team, Nancy, and then we'll reach out to you and we'll have you back on the show because I think this Early intervention and occupational therapy stuff is so crucial because it ties together a lot of the different trendy things that are in early childhood education. And I say trendy to mean very important and, and kind of new and upcoming. But through these things, we can better learn about play-based learning. We can better learn about appropriate versus inappropriate learning spaces. That's a huge thing. Okay, if everybody's in a chair like a traditional um, classroom, uh, like a, let's say a preschool classroom looks like a fifth grade classroom. I think you're doing something wrong. So right. being able to talk about those different things would be a really great thing. And listeners, if you have anything, feel free to reach out to us on our social channels to say, Hey, I want to hear more about this topic from Nancy. And then we'll have her back on the show and we can, we'll have it. So. Absolutely. One thing I do want to ask you about Nancy and, and a question that actually came from one of our team members was if I'm a teacher and I say, okay, I think there's a student in my classroom who could really benefit from an evaluation. And I call, I call OccuPlay and you say, awesome, I'm going to come on Tuesday. And then Tuesday comes around and you get there as a teacher. What can I expect when you come into my classroom? 
Absolutely. Basically, when we first come in, well, let me preface it by saying that there are times where we will come in and do a screening. Um, and that might just be like a 10 to 15 minute global look at, you know, again, some of those observations of what the child looks like at the table, what look, what he looks like, um, you know, sitting on the floor, how they engage with their peers, things like that. Um, and then more specific to, you know, how they hold their pencil, a little bit of the fine motor, a little bit of the visual motor, the eye-hand coordination. And so we just come in, we do a pretty structured screening. We've got some preschool screening tools that we use. Um, and so then based on the results of that screening, then I might recommend further evaluation to you, the teacher, um, and or to the school, whoever was the one to initiate, you know, having us come in. Um, and or if I felt, you know, I think maybe the child would better be served by a vision therapy, by a developmental optometrist, you know, if I saw some things happening through that visual system. Um, or, you know, there, I can tell through the quality of their voice that they're it sounds a little muffled or it sounds a little um, frothy, then I might say, you know what? Speech therapy would be more appropriate for a further evaluation. So really just kind of determining if OT is the appropriate service. And if so, then we would recommend a more formal evaluation that can be done either in that preschool setting or the family could you know, come to us at our clinic. Um, so that's, that's pretty much what that would look like. Now, I know if there's any teachers out there listening, this is going to be a big question in their minds is one of the hardest parts emotionally as a teacher is having a conversation with a parent where you say, I really see the need for evaluation or I see the need for an occupational therapist, or I think your child could benefit from a speech therapist, et cetera. How, like, do you have any words of wisdom for teachers who are having those conversations? Cause they can be really difficult. Yes. And we have experienced that many times. <laughs> so I think the most important thing to consider is to be honest with yourself, to trust your parent gut instinct, you know, I think every parent intuitively knows something might just be a little bit off. They may not be ready to admit that at that point in time, and that's okay. But, you know, if you feel that there is some form of challenge or problem with your child's development in whatever way, to not ignore it. Um, many times I feel what happens is the parent will then be like, okay, I'm going to go to the pediatrician. And the pediatrician says, don't worry, they'll outgrow it. <laughs> right? You've heard that before. Yeah. Um, sometimes that is true. Absolutely. But when you see it impacting on your child's ability to function within the classroom or the home environment, um, to be able to interact with their peers to have increased levels of, if you're seeing or noticing increased levels of frustration or anxiety, then it's time to seek professional guidance. And it is such a, you know, fine line again of no parent wants to hear that their child has bad behavior. I hate to use that word bad, but you know, and I'm, I'm just using that globally. Yeah, negative behavior or yeah, I don't even know what the right way to say it, but every, I think our listeners get it. Like yeah, the exactly. behavior that's not great. <laughs> so, you know, and, and again, when we think of a behavior, a behavior can be a motor behavior. It can be a sensory behavior. It can be a shutdown behavior. It could be uh, overexcitement. It, a behavior can be a number of different things. And so, but when it really starts to impact and maybe as a parent, you go to a birthday party and your child can't, you know, be at that party for more than five minutes because it's too overstimulating for them. Again, that's not so abnormal, atypical, but if it continues to happen over a period of time in a variety of different settings, including that school setting, then it's time to really you know, listen to the professionals and say, you know, let's, let's get this taken care of. And, and 
you know, what I really want to say is that um, these behaviors, the child doesn't start out wanting to be a certain way, meaning that they don't want to be a avoidant type of child or um, what's the a defiant type of child. That's not their goal, right? Their goal is to play and to have fun and to learn and to enjoy and just to share their excitement of being a kid. <laughs> and um, what happens though, is that a lot of times when there are these underlying um, components that are affecting these behaviors, then the child starts to learn. And this is the million dollar question and there's books written about it. Is this sensory or is this behavior? And that's where it gets, you know, again, we have to tease out like, okay, have they now learned that this behavior gets a certain type of reaction? And so I might use this behavior again to get out of what is really hard for me. Mm -hmm. Or I might be disruptive in the class because it gets everybody off track and then I don't have to do what was about to happen that I didn't want to happen. Mm -hmm. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think I think <laughs> that was really helpful, Nancy. I think there was something else I wanted to add about. Oh, so then they become habitual behaviors. Mm -hmm. I think this has been great for, for me to chew on. Um, Sam, do you have any last thoughts? Can I ask one more question? Sure. Yeah. One more. Nancy, will you just really quick give like, and I know this is kind of universal, so it's tough, but like three to five quick things that teachers who maybe have a student that they're looking to help in a different kind of way, can you give like three to five quick tips of things that maybe for them to try in their classroom to see if it makes a difference? I would say, look at the environment itself, meaning are there a lot of visual distractions, auditory distractions, you know, where's your classroom situated within the school, just really paying attention to, and here's just a small example that a child can have a reaction to something so simple as a light buzzing, or like if they have noise sensitivity or a light flickering if they have visual sensitivity. Um, so looking at those environmental aspects within the classroom and around the classroom, and how can we then dampen maybe some of those extra stimuli that might be triggering certain behaviors? Um, natural lighting is always best. Soothing music. I love using different types of classical music in the background. Um, I love children's music, if that's appropriate at any given time, or just using rhythmic, you know, types of music. Um, and there's so many different programs available. That's another whole topic in itself, but that can really set the stage for the type of learning that we want to take place. You know, it's based on beats per minute. It's based on level of arousal. So just looking at some of those environmental contexts, using a soft voice, honoring where that child is and trying to see as hard as it is because you've got you know however many other children that are within that within that classroom that you're having to attend to but you know there may be one or two that are just causing those little triggers to to happen in another child kind of just really honing in on recognizing that it may not just be again that quote unquote bad behavior, but that there's something internally that that individual is struggling with. And to be able to develop a connection and say, I hear you, I am here for you, I support you, what can I do to help you? You know, we, we underrate what they're capable of sharing with us. Mm -hmm. And if, when you just literally get down and say, what do you need? I see that you're struggling with something. What can I help you with? You'd be amazed at what they might come out with. And it can be a variety of different things. <laughs> <laughs> Just connecting and letting them trust who you are and feeling safe. I think that's just so critical. Well, Nancy, first, thank you for everything you've done for me and my family personally, but also for your dedication to early childhood and to occupational therapy and for sharing the amazing information that you brought today. It has 
been a pleasure having you on the show again. I was so excited when you said yes. <laughs> oh, and um, I was glad to be asked. Nancy, where can our listeners find you? Okay. So again, I just want to say that I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to share what I'm really passionate about. And I can see the passion coming out in both of you as well. And I'm sure many of the listeners that are out there. Um, and I think we can all say that every child that we work with becomes a part of who we are and part of our hearts forever. <laughs> so um, the best way to reach me is um, through my email. And that is nancy at ocuplayinc.com. And my phone number, um, you can feel free to call me. I, that's fine. Is 904-382-9790. Or my Facebook or Instagram pages, Occupy Inc. You don't want to join my personal page because I post a lot of sunrise pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll link all of those in the show notes too, just to make it a little easier for yeah. our uh, listeners to find you. But again, thank you so much for being here, Nancy. This was such an incredible conversation. And I really look forward to letting you know when we can have you back. I would love that, really. It's been an absolute pleasure. What an incredible conversation with Nancy today. I can't express the amazing influence that she has had on me as a teacher, a director, and as a parent. We learned that occupational therapy encompasses a wide range of activities that are essential for a child's growth, development, and success in everyday activities. Nancy shared the importance of early intervention, which helps children overcome challenges and reach their full potential. We also gained insights into when educators and parents should consider introducing occupational therapy into the lives of their young learners. Early intervention paired with a collaboration between educators, parents, and occupational therapists can make a profound difference in a child's life. OccuPlay, the space created by Nancy, serves as an incredible and valuable resource for educators, families, and other occupational therapists by providing tools and support to enhance the effectiveness of occupational therapy in early childhood education. Nancy emphasized that occupational therapy doesn't just address physical aspects, but also contributes to the cognitive and social-emotional growth of young children. It's a holistic approach that nurtures every facet of a child's development. We heard about challenges faced in the field of occupational therapy and celebrated the success stories where children have overcome obstacles and flourished with the support of this therapy. And Nancy's advice to educators and parents is a valuable reminder. Building a strong foundation for a child's development involves patience, understanding, and seeking professional support when needed. I know for me, personally, Seeking Nancy's counsel was invaluable in the classroom, and because of her and occupational therapists like her, children's lives are changed for the better. We hope that this episode has shed light on the transformative power of occupational therapy in early childhood ed and has inspired you to explore it further. To our listeners, if you loved today's conversation, we would love it if you subscribed to Out of Ratio on your preferred podcast platform and write us a quick review if you have a moment. Your support helps us continue to create episodes where we explore topics relevant to early childhood development. We also welcome your reviews and feedback. Your support helps us reach a wider audience of parents, educators, and advocates for early childhood education. Thank you so much for joining us today on Out of Ratio with Bertelson Education. And until our next episode, continue nurturing the boundless potential of our youngest learners. I'll see you next time.